Hello, um, welcome. So normally this is Conversations in Calvinism, but uh, Turton Fan isn't uh, here today. So I'm joined by um, Dr. Brian Bassiano and Luke Gowdy, and this is a response to Leighton Flowers on 1 Corinthians 12.3. So in our last video, which I highly recommend you check out, where it's uh, Arminianism versus Provisionism, it's part of an ongoing discussion that's kind of sparked up about um, the difference between uh, provisionist and Arminians on total depravity and prevenient grace. So that's the overall context. However, this is to highlight one specific text, which is 1 Corinthians 12, um, 3. And um, Dr. Flowers recently did a video responding to, um, especially Brian, who uh, elaborated on the passage in the last video. I highly encourage everyone to go check out the last video, also to listen to Dr. Flowers' response, although we're going to play clips from his response. Um, in fact, the, the the bulk of his response as it pertains to the text of, of Scripture in this video. Um, in terms of introductions, uh, obviously, welcome back, Brian. Welcome back, Luke. I know you guys introduced yourself the, the last go-around, so I won't uh, ask you to, to give the spiel again, um, unless you prefer to. But uh, if not, we can just launch right into... Um, the text of scripture, and then uh, Dr. Flowers' uh, response, and then go from there. Should we? Uh, should I just say very briefly that the way I see 1 Corinthians 12, 3 um, is, well, Paul says that no one can, can, basically he says that no one can affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so my contention is that that is a clear reference to confessing Christ as Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so you think that's enough to? Yes, no, that, that on, um, seems, uh, seems pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. Okay. Okay. Um, well, why don't we bring in, uh, Leighton Flowers' uh, previous video and take a look and just listen. So just, uh, just, uh, Tell me when to stop, and then we'll we'll listen, um, stop, and make some comments, and then keep rough trucking. So uh, let's go ahead and fire this up. And before we go there, let's look at the passage, because I think it'll give you some context of what is going to be talked about from Dr. Abishano, as you're about to hear. Let me um, let me look at the passage. Okay, here it is. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Now stop right there. We know now what the topic is. Okay, the topic is spiritual gifts. All right. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about spiritual things. So concerning spiritual gift, brothers. So he's talking to Christians about spiritual gifts. That's the context. I don't want you to be unaware. In other words, you need to be informed about this. I don't want you to be, I don't want you to get confused. I don't want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, uh, Gentiles is oftentimes a, a synonym in the, those days for pagans. When you were heretics, when you were heathens, when you were outside the faith, okay, when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. But now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. And so the context, obviously, is helping them to see uh, about spiritual gifts and understand who is leading them by the Spirit? Who is speaking by the Spirit of God? Because a lot of people claim to be speaking the words of the Spirit. Who was known in those days 
to be claiming to speak for God, to be speaking by the Spirit. In the days of Paul, who was out there claiming to be speaking by the Spirit of God? The Jews were. The, the leading Jewish people were saying, we are the mouthpiece, the oracles of God's divine revelation. We are the ones speaking of God. And so he's instructing the church, how do you know who is speaking of God and who isn't? Well, what are the leaders of the church saying? What are the le leaders of the J Jewish synagogue saying, I should say? Well, they're saying Jesus is anathema. Jesus is accursed. He hung on a cross. We're, they're throwing Jesus out. And what Paul's coming along and saying is, you know they're not speaking of the Spirit because they're the ones who are saying Jesus is accursed. So how do we know who are the ones who are speaking by the Spirit of God? They're the ones who are saying Jesus is Lord because they wouldn't be saying Jesus is Lord except by that Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is the one who's going to empower them and strengthen them and give them the courage amidst this world of of, of persecution. Because remember, people who are saying Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord, uh, they were getting their heads cut off and they were being persecuted, hung on crosses, okay? So you don't have the power to stand up and to say Jesus is Lord, especially as a Jew, unless you're given that power by the Spirit. The Spirit is going to empower you. The Spirit is going to give that power for you to say, this is how we know who truly is speaking by the Spirit of God. That's the context of this verse, okay? So what you're about to see is, and even though he, he gives qualification that he's not trying to do this, I still think this is exactly what ends up happening. When you take a, a point that's not being, a question that's not being asked, and you impose it into the text in order to get your pet doctrine from it, it's the worst case of eisegesis that, I, that you, can, you can ultimately do. And I, and I say this with all due respect, I, don't, I know he's not meaning to do this, but in order to get total inability, what you'll hear Brian Abishana doing is latching onto this verse to say that the reason that people are able to confess Jesus as Lord is because the Holy Spirit preveniently undoes total inability and gives them back that capacity to say Jesus is Lord, otherwise they couldn't. Okay. Does this verse, is this verse even talking about that? I don't think so. And I think it's a huge stretch. So Okay, so that seemed like a maybe a good stopping point so we can launch into some response. Now, there's much more material uh, coming up, and so looking forward to getting into that. But I just wanted to pause and, and maybe talk about um, two of the things that he's mentioned. So I, I think, first off, I wanted to hear you guys' thoughts on the whole context being with regards to spiritual gifts, and then the context also being with regards to persecution. So I don't know if you guys want to comment on those points before we move on to some of Layton's further comments. And while I do, I'm, I'll pull the text in just so we can see it. Um, so we'll have that in front of us. But uh, yeah, so do you, do you guys want to um, make some remarks at this point? Well, I mean, I think it's important for the audience, our audience, I mean, to think about, just look at the text, think about this and does this mention persecution? Is this at the forefront of Paul's mind here? Or is he about to say that there's a diversity of gifts, but also say that we are unified by the fact that we all say that Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and nobody can say Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. That is a mark of something important and something that unifies us. And then 
going down into the diversity of gifts, we can he can now talk about that comfortably, having affirmed what we all have the the but by means of the spirit is the ability to confess that Jesus is Lord. I, I think that takes makes a lot more sense than talking about Jews in the synagogue not having the power to say Jesus is Lord. Um, the Jews suffered a lot and were able to stand up under persecution for saying all sorts of things. So we don't need to decide who, who people stand up for persecution for all sorts of reasons. But uh, and yes, the Holy Spirit will help us stand up under persecution. But that's certainly not what this is about. And I just I think it's really special pleading here. So um, I, I'll stop with that. Yeah, 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 I agree. Um, of course, like there was, uh, there was a synagogue in, in the first century, the first century, and there was persecution and that sort of thing. But First Corinthians 12 says nothing about those things. And so it's, it, if we look at the context, if, if we actually look at what Paul says here. One, I want to make the point that Leighton didn't really talk about or address my uh, articulation of the context in our last video. And I think he's responding to my view, but he doesn't touch that. Uh, My view is much more based in the literal context of Roman, of uh, 1 Corinthians 12. And so just that's one thing that's interesting. He didn't he didn't really touch my comments on that. His comments are appealing, like Luke has just pointed out, are appealing to things that are not mentioned really there in the context. This idea of persecution, the idea of the Jew, Jewish synagogue, um, and so look at what Paul does say. Like one thing that that uh, Leighton is right on about is that the context is about spiritual gifts. So Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about spiritual gifts and about the expression of spiritual gifts within the church. Okay. And so as he does that, if we just look along here now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy spirit. And so Paul does look back to uh, their pagan past and basically points out, you were led by idols in that. And then he turns and says, look, you can't, uh, you can't uh, call Jesus a curse by the spirit of God, right? That's not what the spirit does. You know what leads you to that is Satan. (laughs) I feel like the uh, church lady. Uh, who might do that? Satan? Uh, uh, and that might be, I don't know if that's dating me. That's a Saturday Night Live. Oh, Saturday Night Live. Uh, but um, this reminds us of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, right? Uh, that that we're spiritually dead and that there's a, uh, that Satan basically works in the disobedient, works in those who are lost. Um, And so here Paul says, you can't claim that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Spirit. And then look at at the context. He starts talking about spiritual gifts more in detail. And the point he begins to make uh, that there are 
well, it's, it's straightforward here. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences uh, of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. So now Paul is talking about the manifestation of the spirit in the believing community, in believers, and how it's the, it's the Holy Spirit who is the one who is working that within them. So this then compares to what he's talking about, that you can't say Jesus is Lord, which really is about you can't affirm Christ as Lord, which is an act of faith. Like he's not talking about the idea that, uh, you know, uh, somebody who is not a believer, like he's not saying, oh, they can't mouth the words that Jesus is Lord. He's talking about the fact that someone cannot truly confess Christ as Lord, cannot say Christ as Lord with sincerity and trust in his lordship, uh, except by the Holy Spirit, except by the Holy Spirit working within us, similar to the Holy Spirit working spiritual gifts in us. And so this, this is a context now. Um, I That's sort of like a... Uh, like a very brief view of the context. It, I, I went much deeper into the context uh, in our video. And there I was talking about the fact that we have 1 Corinthians 12, 14 as a, as a discussion uh, of spiritual gifts, at least in 12 and in 14. And right in the middle comes the famous love chapter. And the way that all fits together is that Paul is concerned about division in the church. He's concerned about division in the church over spiritual gifts about some people looking at certain spiritual gifts as making people more certain people more important, looking down on others because they don't have certain spiritual gifts, those types of concerns, division over spiritual gifts. The love chapter is right in, in between there to help guide like the what's most important is that we love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we don't look down on each other over spiritual gifts. And then here, the question would be, why is Paul making this point about uh, about you can't you can't confess Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit? Well, the reason why he does that is because of the fact that that all Christians have this in common that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, confess Christ. And so, uh, before we're before someone's a Christian or as they're making that decision, the Holy Spirit comes alongside them and empowers them. So, whether you're whether you're a sinner becoming saved, the Holy Spirit empowers you, or in certainly when you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit then, when you when you express faith in Christ, He then comes and dwells within you, and whether it's before um, you've fully become a Christian, as you're becoming a Christian, or whether it's after you've become a Christian, it's the Holy Spirit in both cases that empowers someone to to confess Christ as Lord, and why make that point? Because as Christians, we all have this in common. We have the Holy Spirit. We have his empowering. We have the manifestation of the Spirit with us. And so he's, he's going to be calling Christians to value one another because it's the Spirit who works in us and with us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I got you. So just to make sure I'm hearing it correctly. So you're... Um... Oh, so I'm hearing a couple things. So I'm hearing there's not a direct statement in the context about external persecution, but there is more so in the context about internal turmoil within the church. So I think that 
uh, addresses the general context, but specifically what I'm hearing is that you start with this foundation of, of you know, faith in Christ and saying that Jesus is Lord, and that's in the spirit. And then everyone has this common, every believer has this common foundation of having the Holy Spirit. And now it gets into, well, this person has this gift, this person has that gift, but, but we're all the same because we all have the same spirit because we have faith and faith is by the Holy Spirit. It, am I, did I hear you correctly? Is that, is that fair? Did I miss, uh, miss something yeah. key? Okay, yeah, I think, cool. yeah, I think, I think, I think you got me. Um, see one thing, just trying to think about, um, just wondering if this will be, would be helpful. Um, something I wrote cause me and me and Leighton have, have written back and forth about this before. And sometimes I've written, you know, have the benefit of being able to write it out rather than talking off the top of my head. Uh, and so I'm just looking for a spot where I kind of, uh, see, okay, I'll just read a little bit of this and see if it's helpful. So I'm saying it's about every believer having the spirit and therefore a spiritual gift or multiple gifts to be used in love to build up the church. And they are all valuable members of the body because, because get, again, all have the spirit and a role to play. Um, okay. So I would say then that we have this sort of, uh, sort of universal statement that applies into to various path, uh, various contexts. Like it can apply to someone who's not a Christian, because since you can't confess Christ apart from the Holy Spirit, then if you're not a Christian, you can't even get into confessing Christ apart from the Spirit. If you are a Christian, we know the Spirit indwells Christians, so it, it's still by the power of the Holy Spirit that even the Christian continues to confess Christ. So I guess that's the point I wanted to make. I, I didn't, I ha did write about it somewhere to. Uh, in the past in conversation with Leighton, but I think that's making the point that I, I want to good enough, well enough. Sure. Sure. Um, so if you, if you guys want, I can um, bring vi Leighton's video back up. We can play a little bit more and comment some more. Uh, does that sound good? Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's go ahead. The question that the, the apostle is answering is how can we tell if someone is speaking by the spirit or not? That's the question that's being asked, and therefore that's the answer he's giving. The Brian Abishano is going to bring a different question to this text. He's bringing the question, does the Spirit have to do something to overcome an innate inability to believe the gospel or not? And then he's using this text as an answer to that question. Two completely different questions. And it is significant as to what question the apostle is attempting to answer, because you can get the Bible to say almost anything you want it to say if you bring the wrong question to the text. Because if you bring a different question than the apostle's answering, then you can make the text say what you want it to say. And ironically, this is exactly the point we brought up in the First John 5.1 discussion with James White. And this is one of the reasons that I brought in um, Dr. Sam Storm's note because Dr. Sam Storm's is a known Calvinist and even he is objective enough to show this. Notice what he says here. He says, uh, John says in uh, verse chapter five, verse one, that whoever is presently believing in Christ has in the past been born or begotten of God. 
a present action of believing is evidence of a past experience of begetting. Is John then saying that new birth or regeneration always precedes and causes faith in Christ? Now, notice what he's asking there. Notice what he's presenting, because this is what uh, James White is trying to get John, 1 John 5, 1 to say. He's saying, is John saying that the new birth or regeneration always proceeds and causes saving faith in Christ? Because that's what Calvinists use 1 John 5, 1 to mean. He goes on objectively to say, although I do believe, Sam Storm says, he's a Calvinist, I do believe new birth, regeneration, proceeds and causes faith. I do not believe that's John's point here. Okay? When one examines these texts where the terminology of regeneration is used, one finds that John is concerned with describing the consequence or the fruit of new birth. So notice what he's saying. He's saying the, the, the consequence of new birth is the, the consequence of it is this. In other words, the, the, same, the same principle could be applied to what we're talking about. How do I know who is speaking of the Spirit? Well, I know because they don't accursed Jesus, they don't anathematize Jesus, they declare him as Lord. That's how I know who's speaking of the Spirit, who's not. So when I'm discerning spiritual gifts and who's leading me, I can know who is speaking of the Spirit because they're declaring Jesus as Lord. They're not accursing Jesus. That's the point. It's exactly the same kind of concept that Dr. Abishano and I were arguing against James White, of all people because he was misapplying this in the same way that I think Abishano was ultimately misapplying 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, to, to support this total inability concept. Now, I Okay, maybe that's another good stopping point. Yeah. So what about this idea of, well, it's a, a test. You're kicking the tires. You're making sure that what you're hearing is, is correct. Um, how, how does that apply to your argument and your position? Yeah, so... And I'm, I do believe he addresses this where he basically ends up agreeing with me to a degree um, later in the video. So when we get there, we could talk about that more. But just basically, I, I made the point that um, a New Testament author or you know anyone in any context, uh, writing or, or speaking or making an argument, can be can be talking about a specific issue. Uh, and in the context of making of talking about that specific issue, they can talk about other distinct issues, make a point about something else that in that context contributes to the point they're making. Uh, but that specific thing isn't what what their main main concern is. So like they can be talking about X. And in the course of talking about X, make point A, make point B. And uh, and yes, in the context point A and point B are, gonna, are going to help contribute to, the, to what they're saying about X, but they might state a truth in A or B that is really a different thing, a different topic, uh, but, it's still, uh, but it's still true. It doesn't change the truth of it. And so if the apostle makes a statement that is true about, uh, that, about this thing here, about, about A, uh, while he's talking about X, A is still true, and and you can appeal to that in your theology as long as you're appealing to it uh, reasonably and and prop with proper understanding of what of what it's saying. Okay, so in this context, I'm not saying that Paul is specifically thinking about uh, the 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 question of uh, 
okay, how do, how does someone become a Christian? Is provenient grace there? Those types, like that's not his specific concern in the context. But what I'm saying is that in addressing the concern he is concerned about, he makes statements that bear on that that question. Even though he, he might be, he wasn't necessarily intending to speak on that question, truths that he reveals while he's talking about that other question actually bear on on that theolo on the theological question of ability to believe the gospel. Does that make sense? Before I, because yeah. I want to adjust the storm's comments, but I guess I want to make sure that concept is clear. It is. If I'm hearing you correctly, what I'm hearing is that Paul, to defend a specific point of this test, is making a more general point about salvation in general, that salvation is by the Spirit. And the test works in the case of assessing, you know, uh, somebody, it, you know, if it's about testing somebody's speech in terms of is this a believer or not, the test works because of the more general picture of, well, salvation is by the Holy Spirit. True confession is by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So I think that's right. true. Okay. Sorry. I, I thought you stopped. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Luke. Did you... uh, no, no. I, that's really what I wanted to okay. say. It's true confession is by the Spirit. So, right. I mean, he's 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 bringing in something from First John. He's trying to bring in that how do you know kind of thing. But um, the 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 unifying point Paul is trying to make is we we all say Jesus is Lord. Oh, I think we lost Luke for a moment there. So I'll I'll jump in and then if he wants to continue when he when his uh his uh internet comes back. Um so yeah I, I mean what you were saying is true I think Dan but really what I I think I was more specifically saying like okay you could Paul could be saying or someone could try to make the point that um, we want to be healthy in life and then uh, while they're talking about being healthy in life they talk about the importance of brushing your teeth uh, and you could say well will they and then somebody uh, say to you hey they weren't talking about brush you know the that's not what their real concern was, the importance of brushing their teeth. Their, their real concern was the importance of being healthy in life. Well, in, in as Paul's making the point, or, or as the, the doctor is making the point that you want to be healthy in life, he makes a point that uh, it's important to brush your teeth. Or he could even make a point that, um, say the doctor is like, uh, he's talking about the importance of being healthy in life, and he says something that's like, really seems very unrelated. Like, now let's just first begin by establishing that we are we are biological organisms and biological organisms uh, need certain things to be able to live rightly. And then he goes on and then, you know, to, to build that case all towards the goal of encouraging us to do things that are healthy for, for our lives. Well, if the, you know, the doctor is an authority and he, you, you trust what he says uh, on all those matters, you can appeal to him talking if he made the statement in in the course of making his other argument which was about other things he makes a statement that he thinks is helpful for that but is not really about that specifically that statement is still reliable and true if if 
if the doctor is reliable and true. And so this is what I'm talking about when when Paul, yeah, he's talking about spiritual gifts, but in order to to make the points that he wants to make about spiritual gifts, he establishes that we um, that we can't confess Christ apart from the Spirit, that we can't affirm Jesus Christ as Lord apart from the, the power of the Spirit working in us. Um, and so him making that point is still valid then, even though uh, that specific point isn't about spiritual gifts, pa Paul takes that truth and applies it to spiritual gifts. And so we don't have to, uh, in order to benefit from that truth that Paul says and, and embrace that theologically, we don't have to, it doesn't have to be about spiritual gifts per se that he's talking about in that very instance, just because he takes that truth and uses it while talking about spiritual gifts. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think yes. that the, the word accept is important there. Um, the word accept is important there because he's excluding any other means. So he's not talking yeah. in general about anything else. He's, he's, he's focusing on how they say Jesus is Lord. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so um, regarding, uh, so do you want me to talk about storms? I didn't know if you were just getting ready to move on or. No, go ahead, please. Yeah. So I was going to talk about the storms comment. Um, well, just before I do that, just to make sure there's no misunderstanding. So you were saying that Paul is excluding other means there, Luke. But you mean, uh, when you say that, uh, there's only one way to say Jesus is Lord by the is by the Spirit. You need you need the Spirit. Yeah, and he's a he's a necessary condition. Yeah, that's it. Not that necessary. There can't be other means that help or contribute, but at the but you but you can't do it without the Spirit. There, it's um, integral. It's integral. Yeah. So. Okay, so the what I wanted to say about the storms thing, because uh, yeah, both me and Leighton interacted with James White um, and about 1 Corinthians 5. And so I'd say that the analogy about Storm's comments on 1 John 5 don't really help his position as in Leighton's position because there's a relationship between faith and re regeneration implied in 1 John 5.1. And um, Storm's indicates that, that what that relationship is is not the point of the text. That's true. That's true. I'm not sure, but Storms might say that you can't glean what that is from the specific text. I actually think one can glean from exegesis of that text what, what's going on there. But be that as it may, there's a there is clearly a relationship between faith and regeneration in 1 John 5 1. And the reason one can know someone is born again when someone has faith is because there is a relationship. Right? In 1 John 5 1. You can know someone is born again if they believe. And so that relationship then is that faith brings regeneration. That's what I would say the underlying relationship is that that would be borne out by exegesis. But I'm not saying that that's what First John 5, 1 is necessarily saying, like that it's not trying to make the case necessarily. Uh, that, it's not the purview of the comment. Right. But... But there is a relationship clearly in First John five one between faith and regeneration, and so uh, I would say, like the Arminian would say, and I think Leighton would say that the that that the underlying relationship that maybe John doesn't indicate what is what it is, 
the under there is a relationship and the underlying relationship is that faith brings regeneration but whether faith brings regeneration or regeneration brings faith if someone has faith you can know that that person is born of god and belongs to god and is saved and that's what first john 5 1 is saying now whether that's because regeneration brings faith so if you see someone with faith you know that the, that they've been regenerated because regeneration is what causes faith or what I would say the biblical view would be because faith brings regeneration. If you see that someone has faith, then you know they have regeneration, right? But in any case, that doesn't really matter in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, because 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 tells us that the empowering of the spirit precedes anyone's ability to confess Jesus as Lord. Without the Holy Spirit, no one can confess Jesus as Lord. That And so that applies to sinner or saint, believer or non-believer. So that I don't see any traction for Leighton in pointing out the, the issue with 1 John 5.1 and, and uh, Storms' comment. The words no one and the word except are pretty important in yeah. that sentence. So. And also super important, super important. I can't emphasize how important enough, the word able. Mm -hmm. So this is talking about inability to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, like inability to express true faith. It, what we're told is everyone is, is unable except by the Spirit. So everyone's unable to confess Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's so, so This is talking about inability to believe, inability to to confess Christ as Lord. Yeah. Did you want to say something? Luke? No, it's the word just dunamai. I mean, everyone knows what that means. That, that Scott, you don't even need to speak Greek. You've probably heard it in church. So. Mm. <clears throat> Absolutely. Okay. Uh, you guys, um, You should I play a little bit more of uh, Leighton Flowers here? Yeah. Okay. Sure. I also wanted to read before we go into Abishano's um, use of 1 Corinthians 12. I want you to see um, Adam Clark. Adam Clark is a, uh, a linguist um, from a more Armenian perspective. And, and I think some of the things he said about verse 3 here really does give some insight to this. Hey, this you want to pause this it point. for a second? So let me, let me go over it. Yes. Rather than belaboring, like going over uh, Leighton's. Uh, use of Clark, I wonder if we should summarize it or if we should just listen to him talk about it. I don't know if that would cut down our... Uh... Well, uh, it's up to you guys. Uh, we can we can skip this part. Um, no, we can, honestly, yeah, I can... I don't want to skip like him talking about Clark, but I, I just wonder, is it important to play him, play his whole, his whole discussion of Clark um, or would it be better to to summarize it and because I, I really want to get to the point that he misuses Clark in the sense that Clark actually affirms in his interpretation of, but I don't know. Well, here, let me, let me is this, bring in this discussion for, about Clark very long. It's not super long. I think he reads uh, Clark's comments and just pauses to uh, intersperse his comments from time to time. Um, Whatever you think, I'm good to to do it. 
if you want to just wa watch them through. Well, well what I could basically what, what, I that, what that establishes that's helpful for Layton is Clark did see it in the context of gospel proclamation. That which is weird. That's unusual, I think, but not, you know, not not totally bizarre in terms of like there's been so many um descriptions of uh so actually let me just see here so he's quoting his yeah i'm sorry i'm just so, looking yeah they, they are his comments on verse 20 uh, on verse 3 but then his comments on verse on no one can say jesus is lord are what very much diverged from what Leighton is saying. Um, he, do. He, do, he does get to it at the end, but so what I've done is taken his video and sped it up um, 25%. So if it's unaudible, we'll switch it back, but uh, maybe for just for the sake of time um, and no other reason, we're just uh, speed up Leighton's comments just so we can get through this quickly. If, if that makes it, maybe that's yeah. one way to handle it. Yeah. Okay. All right, let me, uh, let's play this for not looking at comments and everything over here on the side chat. Uh, Contemplate, thank you for your uh, your donation. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, again, I'm not able to see all of those while my head's over here. So I, I, I for, forgive me if I don't see um, super chats and things. Okay, so look at what Adam Clark says, uh, Dr. Adam Clark says with regard to uh, verse three of chapter 12. No man speaking by the spirit of God, it was granted on all hands that there could be no religion without divine inspiration. In other words, we need the inspired words of God. We need we need the religion revealed to us. We need truth revealed to us, right? We need inspiration because God alone could make known uh, make His will known to men. In other words, only God can make His will known. We can't know what He's thinking unless He reveals it to us. How does He reveal it to us through prophets, through apostles, and scriptures, right? Hence, heathen, uh, heathenism pretended to this inspiration. In other words, heathens would claim to be inspired by a spirit. We're, they said, well, no, we're speaking the spirit of God. We're, we're speaking from God. We're talking for God. So even heathens would pretend to have this inspiration. Judaism had it in the law and the prophets, and it was the very essence of the Christian religion. The heathen priests and priestesses pretended to receive by inspiration from their God, the answers to which they gave their followers. Okay. So notice what Adam Clark is pointing out. This is the issue that Paul is dealing with. That there are people in that day, even among the Jews especially, who are doing what? They're claiming to be speakers of God. They're, they're claiming to be speaking by the Spirit of God. Okay? Well, let's read on. And as far as the people believed, their pretensions, so far as they were led by their teaching, both Judaism and heathenism were full of expectations of a future teacher and a deliverer. And to this person, especially among the Jews, the Spirit in all the prophets gave witness. This was the anointed one, the Messiah, who was manifested in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and in him the Jews rejected. So notice what's happening. The Jews are rejecting their Messiah, generally speaking, right? But they're expecting a Messiah. They're claiming to speak for God, just like the heathens were. The Jews and the heathens were all saying, we're speaking for God. We're speaking by the Spirit of God. Though he proved his divine mission, both by his doctrines and his miracles, but he did not come as a fancy as fancy as, he, as the almighty secular conqueror, conqueror they not only rejected, but blasphemed him. So in other words, because he wasn't the conquering hero they were expecting, they blasphemed him. They reject him. And persons among them professing to be spiritual men and under the influence of the Spirit of God did so. But as the Holy Spirit, through the law and the prophets, gave testimony to the Messiah, and as Jesus proved himself to be the Christ, both by his miracles and doctrines, no man under the inspiration of the divine Spirit could say to him, anathema, thou art a deceiver. In other words, notice what he's saying. 
no one of these Jews and these heathens claiming to be taught by or be speaking under or by the Spirit of God who is claiming Jesus anathema is being truthful. They cannot be speaking by the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God would never teach this, would never anathematize Christ, right? And the person worthy of... Hang on, so I, I, I got to interject here. So I don't think Adam Clark is saying what Leighton thinks he's saying because Adam Clark, maybe he spun off in some different directions that he probably shouldn't have gone. He should have stuck to the text. But what he is saying here is that the not that the authors of scripture are inspired and then people read inspired words, but that the people saying that Christ is and Lord are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's a key distinction because I don't think Leighton would ever say that. Um, I'm, I'm not even sure I would go that far, but that's where Clark goes. Anyways, I don't know if you guys um, agree or disagree with that point, but I'm, I'm afraid that Leighton has gotten off track here a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. I mean, I can, I can keep playing him here, but um, okay. Let's, I guess let's keep on. Of death, as the Jews did. Therefore, the Jews were no longer under the inspiration of God. Notice the point here. The Jews are not speaking of, from God. The Spirit of God is not guiding the Jews because they're anathematizing Christ. And that's how we know they're not speaking by the Spirit because they're anathematizing Christ. This appears to be the meaning of the apostles in this place. No man speaking by the Spirit. In other words, and no man can say that Jesus is Lord, nor can we demonstrate this person to be the Messiah and the Savior of men, but by the Holy Ghost enabling us to speak with diverse tongues. In other words, notice the way in which um, Dr. Clark here is explaining how the, the 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 people are being persuaded of Jesus' messiahship. Well, first, there's the miracle of diverse tongues. There's the miracles of the works of miracles, the healings, walking on waters, the attesting to the truth of the doctrines to them. In other words, what was attesting to the truth of the doctrines? The miracles, the signs, the wonders. They were demonstrating through external human means, supernatural as they were, demonstrating the truthfulness of the doctrines that the Messiah were bringing by enlightening their minds, changing their hearts, and filling them with the peace and the love of God. There were diversities of gifts. He goes on to talk about the diversities of gifts that we've already talked about. So we all believe, just like he's saying here, there's a changing of the hearts. By what means are their hearts being changed and provoked? Just like the, the story of Lazarus coming from the grave that Calvinists often use as their proof text for um, this, this concept of pre-faith regeneration. What, what's he say in the context of that passage? He says, I'm glad that I delayed my coming so that you would see this miracle of this resurrection and start believing my words. In other words, this miracle, supernatural action of resurrection of Lazarus bears witness to the truth of my words and what I'm saying to you. In other words, he's using external means to help persuade them to change their hearts, to change their minds, to help them to believe. That's what we're saying. All the means that the Holy Spirit uses are helping to change the hearts and minds of sinners, not because they're born ontologically incapable or in any way incapable of believing truth when it's clearly made known, unless, of course, they themselves choose willingly to close their eyes and their ears to the truth being revealed. That's the okay. Maybe that's a good stopping point. So, do you guys have thoughts on um, Adams Clark's uh, commentary? And he, I guess now Leighton is bringing in the idea of um, instrumentality and means and that sort of thing, and applying it to the text of First Corinthians twelve three. Well, yeah, a couple of things. Well, one, notice that Clark doesn't doesn't uh, give. Leighton's view of it being about persecution, right? And God and the Holy Spirit empowering, uh, empowering people to stand up to persecution, right? 
Am I right there? Right. Yep. And then secondly, I would just say uh, the thing that Leighton does get from this is that um, you now have, you do have Clark, basically it seems like he's applying this. Um, at least in part to preachers, like, right? To preachers preaching the, the, the gospel. Is that accurate? Seem accurate that Clark is taking that position or no? I think, I honestly think that, that uh, Dr. Flowers is reading that into Clark because Clark is saying that the Holy Spirit is inspiring people to say Christ is Lord. Not that the Holy Spirit is inspiring the scriptures and then the people read those inspired scriptures and then they say that Christ is right. No, he's saying that the Holy Spirit is inspiring people. And then when he, when he said, Clark says, um, so the Holy Spirit is attesting to the truth of our doctrines to them that hear by enlightening their minds, changing their hearts and filling them with the peace and love of God. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I mean, it seems like Leighton is is reading his views into Clark. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not only that, but Clark everywhere where, where he brings up the topic we're discussing is so clear. It's I mean, you could write. Oh, I think I think we lost Luke again there in terms of his internet. Oh, there he is again. Okay. I I mean, we could quote dozens of ver of comments by Clark uh, addressing what Leighton thinks is is Clark's view here. He, he's so clear. Uh, it's, it's anyone who knows Clark is just not going to waste time on that. Yeah. And so I, mean, I guess I would say, yeah, I see, I see what Dan's saying. So I think it doesn't even help Leighton there. I was trying to be as fair as I could to Leighton, but, and I think it's a real problem. Like even if, even if Clark was talking about that, notice that, um, that Clark's comment at the end. So, and this is partly why I was thinking about maybe he's talking about um, preaching, nor can we demonstrate this person talking about Christ to be the Messiah and the Savior of men, but by the Holy Ghost. And then listen to this, enabling us to speak with, with diverse tongues, to work miracles. He attesting the truth of our doctrine doctrines to them that hear by enlightening their minds, changing their hearts, and filling them with the peace and love of God. So this is exactly the type of thing we're talking about when we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts. And Leighton seems to read in the idea of, of means. Is that seeming right? That he's sort of, in, in other words, he's, he's trying to say that the enlightening of minds, changing of hearts, and filling with the peace and love of God is is that Clark has in mind is about uh, is about like working miracles and such. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so if I were like, that's all yeah, I, if I, I understand. He's talking about the Holy Spirit changing their hearts and filling with the peace and love of God. That is an internal work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But go ahead. You were going to say. I, yeah. Well, well, so, you know, the truth of our doctrines, right? So the Holy Spirit is attesting to the truth of our doctrines. But if I understand Leighton correctly, he's saying that the, the truth is the power. It's kind of right. this, um, that the doctrines basically speak for themselves and they don't need 
an extra work of the Holy Spirit to attest to them. So it, it's almost like if, if Clark were saying what Leighton is saying, then it's the doctrines or in the truth in the doctrines that enlightens the minds, changes the hearts and fills people with the peace and love of God. But no, Clark is saying the Holy Spirit does that alongside to attest to the truth of the doctrines. So, so yeah. I also think that the last sentence in that clip, Leighton said, all of these means are necessary. Um, but he means it in a different way than we do because we can agree with that sentence. What he means is all the, or he maybe he said all these means are involved. Um, but uh, we agree that they're all involved. <laughs> we just don't disagree that he, he just says, well, each one could be individually present and the others not necessary. And we're just saying that we, we don't, when we look at this, we don't say uh, none of this is involved. It's all involved. So we, we appreciate that he says it's all involved and we agree with that sentence, it's just that he doesn't believe they're all simultaneously involved. Right, exactly. So, but, but I, okay, so for, for the sake of discussion, so setting Clark aside, um, taking his argument, so Leighton is saying, well, okay, yes, we need the Holy Spirit to confess faith in Christ, but it's by instrumentation, it's by preaching, it's by the revelation and uh, the Holy Spirit inspiring scriptures and that sort of thing. And so what do you make of that argument? And um, not to, yeah, so what do you make of that argument? And does that fit the context when it says that we are, um, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Ghost. Does, does that work that uh, this kind of, well, it's just, it's mostly referring to the inspiration of scripture or uh, spirit field messengers preaching the scripture. I think he, he often changes. No one can say to no one can hear. And, and he would, he often changes it. I, or at least that's his intent to change it from no one can hear that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Ghost, and then they will confess it. But that's that's not even in view here. It's just how do we say Jesus is Lord? Why do we say Jesus is Lord? It's by the Holy Spirit. Um, nothing else is in view. It's I, I'm very satisfied with how the sentence is written. I don't need to come up with any elaborate story about Jews in the synagogue and being able to withstand persecution. It's just, it's not in view here. Right. And yeah, so, so it's really critical uh, again, that it, this is, I guess, echoing what you're saying, but just that, that this is talking about an action that we take and we take, we can't take that action, but by the Holy spirit. And so Leighton seems to want to take the Holy spirit and then replace that with the word or the gospel or some other something else when when the, the the instrumentality is the spirit himself in in the statement so and if we read the text just as it is for what it's saying um it seems like Leighton is reading his view into it like he wants to um because there there are passages where 
yes, the word is also um, clearly necessary, of course, right? But but the problem for Leighton's view is that the spirit is necessary and as a direct means himself of of this action of affirming Christ as Lord. So what do you, where are you getting this idea of the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit? Like we're, um, I guess um, that, that idea from this text of uh, no one can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit, the, the instrumentality of the Holy Ghost is, um, yeah, I guess where, um, where, where's that idea from? So, well, I mean, it's the, like the, like in English, the word by, by the Holy Spirit, right? That's, that's a, an indication of instrumentality in Greek. It's the instrumental use of the word en, en, uh, which, which is translated in. Um, I did, I, I know that, uh, like, uh, Anthony Thistleton, who has like over, over uh, 11 pages on verse three in his magisterial commentary uh, does talk about this. He says, uh, let's see. So the preposition with the dative and pneumati could denote the sphere of the spirit of God understood in effect as a locative and could be translated in the spirit or under the influence of the spirit. But the context of theology of confessional declaration point to the dative of instrumentality or agency of the spirit. And I think that's right. Most of the sort of, most of like the more modern translations seem to use the word by the spirit. Um, so, okay. So that's the, that's the instrumentality. It's, it's in or in the Holy Spirit, but he, he, he's saying it could be locative, like we're inside the Holy Spirit, but it's more so instrumental in the power of the Holy Spirit. Is yeah. that Right, the under the influence of the spirit, by the spirit, uh, by by the by his instrumentality or by his agency. Um, and again, it's our action that's by the agency of the spirit. It's not saying it's our our uh, our action that's by the agency of like the word of God specifically there. That's what Paul's affirming here, or you know something else that Leighton wants to sort of. Uh, pull in that's related to the spirit. Okay. I mean, that's the, in essence by the power of the Holy spirit. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's quite simple and clear. Okay. So just taking stock a bit. So we, you know, we've covered Adam Clark and Adam Clark in general, um, disagrees with Leighton, but even in that specific passage, certainly seemed like Adam Clark was on our side and that Leighton was reading his own views into Adam Clark and it just really wasn't a fit there. And then Brian, I appreciate you explaining that the by the spirit or in the spirit is talking about the instrumentality of the spirit and we're doing things in the power of the Holy Spirit. So with that said, I guess let's, um, if you guys are cool with this, let's listen to a bit more of uh, late flowers here. Now, once again, just a reminder, just for the sake of time, I've sped him up to 1.25 speed. So he'll be uh, speaking a bit fast. He's going to be um, playing clips from Brian earlier and then responding to them. We'll fast forward through Brian so we can just focus on what uh, Dr. Flowers has to say. So if that all sounds good, we can 
um, take a look at what uh, Leighton has to say. All right, I will go ahead and play him here. You to hear before you heard Rana Bashano, I wanted you to hear kind of the background and then my take of First Corinthians 12 3, along with Adam Clark's take of a well respected uh, linguist and his take of uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, before you hear Dr. Abishano's take on it and how he's applying it to establish his concept of total inability. And then you can be the judge as to which uh, is doing the proper exegesis of these texts. All right, here we go. All right, so, and then, you know, Holy Spirit, for Paul, for the gospel, from the dead, you will be Paul. Even though I think he, he understands that 1 Corinthians 12 is not about people responding in salvation in a salvific manner, he's he seems to be coming from here and going over to Romans 10 to say, see the confession that Jesus is Lord is a salvific confession and therefore applying that salvific confession to what's being talked about here with, with regard to spiritual gifts and understanding and discerning who's speaking by the spirit of God and who's not. And, and again, he's trying to strengthen his case that this is about the soteriological matter uh, of prevenient grace, I guess. Calls or whoever will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we see the saving response to the gospel can only be given by the Holy Spirit. Replayed that the Holy Spirit's help trying to understand where Brian's coming from. The gospel that brings salvation. So it's I replayed that seven or eight times trying to understand where Brian's coming from here. I don't know why you cannot consider the Holy Spirit's help by means of a preacher proclaiming it as sufficient help that we would need in order to confess. Um, he just seems to ad hoc just kind of claim it. Now, it can't be the gospel just because of reasons. And then he doesn't really tell us a reason. He just says because it's a response to the gospel. Well, a response to something that's helping you is a response. And it's a response to something helping you. So if if um, if I were trying to convince you of becoming a provisionist and I sat down with you and helped you using my book or using you know, means to talk to you, maybe this video, even persuading you to become a provisionist, and you were to respond positively to my persuasive words, then you would say, thank you for helping me become a provisionist, right? So, and then, and then Brian would come in and go, no, 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 wait, wait. Your words and your presentation of provisionism is not what helped them. It was helped by some other means that are secret. You go, okay, why? Why, why, why would we say that unless we assume there's needs for some other secret means of helping? It, it doesn't, it, I, I don't follow that argument at all. It's not the gospel, it's the... Okay, so maybe we can pause here and comment. So I, I think I picked up on two points that uh, are worth addressing. So one is the, what is the connection between the, the you know, confession of faith that we see in First Corinthians twelve three, um, and then the same, the, the confession of faith in Romans ten, and the second topic I think is well worth addressing, um, is the, the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. Well, isn't it enough to say well? Back in the day, the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures and, and wrote it down in a book. And so if we have the book and we're reading that book, isn't that sufficient to say um, it's by the Holy Spirit because he inspired the book that people now read? So I think those two points are um, interesting and, and worth commenting on. If you guys uh, agree, I'd love to get your thoughts on those two points. Yeah. So, yeah, let me explain. Uh, Leighton didn't seem to understand what what i was saying there by uh by quoting from romans 10. and so really what i the reason why i went to romans 10 was to establish that that affirming jesus christ as lord uh the what the formula used in 12 3 is a saving expression uh for someone who is is coming to faith and then 
of course, for Christians, as, as we continue to, uh, to claim that where we persevere in our faith, that, that is a, you know, that is part and parcel of salvation. That's just continuing in salvation with, with our continuing faith. So my point, uh, so that I wanted to establish that in first Corinthians 12, three, uh, and then what I want us to see also in 12, three, that, that, uh, that what, what's mentioned in 12.3, that the, the by the spirit part, it's because it, it seems like sometimes Leighton wants to say by the spirit means by the spirit having revealed the gospel. And my, my point here is that in, in 1 Corinthians 12.3, we're talking about the response to the gospel. And so by the spirit can't refer to the gospel itself because the confession of Christ as Lord is the response to the gospel. It's, it's affirming the gospel. So it would be, it would be as if Paul was saying, no one can uh, affirm the gospel except by the gospel. And that's uh, pretty redundant. It, it doesn't make much sense for that, for that to be what Paul is saying here in first Corinthians 12, three, like what, why would he even be saying that? Um, it, it, it just, it's just not uh, connecting to the context. I, I, we've already talked about the context a bit, so uh, it it's not he, what Paul's really doing is showing that the Holy Spirit is empowering and uh, in leading and helping those who to believe to believe it's into in uh, working in them, and so. Uh, and we see this throughout the context that uh, as Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, he's talking about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in believers, so within them. And the Holy Spirit, so doing things by the Spirit is, is the Holy Spirit empowering people and helping them uh, to do what they're doing. So in, in other words, as we look in 1 Corinthians and various spiritual gifts, whether it's prophecy or tongues, that's the Holy Spirit working within the person and moving in the person and expressing himself and his power and working in them to do that. And so it's the same thing that you, uh, then when he says, you can't, uh, you can't affirm Jesus as Lord, except by the Holy Spirit, working that in you empowering you to do that now with just as with spiritual gifts it's not the holy spirit coming and taking control of you and you have no free will in it you there's still a yielding to the spirit in that but the point is still that it's the power of the holy spirit working in the person to bring that about and so and it's a direct uh agency of the spirit it's it's what Leighton seems to continue to do is try to replace uh, when, when you have the Holy Spirit often it seems like if the Holy Spirit's mentioned or his agency is mentioned it seems like Leighton wants to just sort of erase that and then import that just means the work of the Holy Spirit in giving the gospel in the past and inspiring preachers in the present or something like that but the, those things are not mentioned here in the context it doesn't mention the gospel there uh, as as what's being what uh, what the people are doing by means of 
he mentions the Holy Spirit. So that's that's what I was doing in in uh, in citing Romans ten. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's good. I think you you I would accentuate a point you're making both kind of directly and indirectly is that the phrase by the spirit is used in verse three, except by the spirit, no one can say Jesus is Lord. And then below by the spirit is how people manifest the spiritual gifts. So right. if by the spirit up above means because he sent holy preachers, then does down below say we can speak tongues because of uh, holy preachers, or I mean, God, God, God inspired preachers. That this is so foreign to the text, it's mm -hmm. it kind of hurts just to, to even try to make it work. And yeah. I, it's just so unnatural. I don't even, I mean, I just appeal to the audience is this what you think the other phrases? I mean, you, you look at verse nine to another faith by the same spirit. Okay, by the same spirit, by the, by the preachers, uh, to another gifts of healing by that one spirit, by that one spirit that sent the preachers. Like, why are we getting the, you know, these are Corinthians at being asked to relate to each other because of what the spirit has done in them and how they relate to the spirit and asking them to use what they have appropriately. Like, like Brian said, the spiritual gift can be used or misused. It can be uh, uh, ignored or or uh, not utilized. It's not saying that these people have been, uh, you know, had a switch flipped. Um, but, uh, you know, I think in Layton's video, he talks about the instrumental means. Well, by the Spirit, these people are speaking in tongues by the Spirit, prophesying by the Spirit. What's the instrumental means by which they submit to the Spirit, allow the Spirit to work in them? How are they getting this, this ability? Where does this enabling come from? Is it coming from the preachers that preach? No. It's, I mean, it's almost silly. To, I mean, it's, it's hard to, I shouldn't use the word silly. I should use, a, a, I would say it's just so uh, unnatural to, 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 to see it that way. And then uh, the, the one thing I object about Leighton's um, video is he uses pejorative terminology. So um, is it, the Holy Spirit has to use a secret means? Well, we know what the means is because it literally says so in the text. Yeah. We don't need to go beyond the text because his means is a secret because it's not in the text. Yes, right. But yeah. means but, yeah. described there is by the Spirit. And Leighton wants to have nothing to do with that phraseology. He is importing something that is not seen anywhere in association with this text. It, it's a great story, but you have to you have to go through this class to re, you know it's re-education. But we can get educated right here, and, and it's and it says the, the spirit by the spirit has to mean above the same thing that it means below. And if it doesn't, we need a really good argument for that. And and so and and so by the spirit when is it saying by the spirit? It's talking about again, an instrumental dative there, the Holy Spirit himself is the means. 
in this case, which and means, and as a person, then it's it's his direct empowering and working. The Holy Spirit can use other means, but sometimes a person himself is the means for something happening. Like if if I shake your hand, that and I directly, you know, shake your hand. That's you know, I'm the I'm the one directly shaking your hand. I could hit you with a stick, and then the stick is the means by which I'm um, I'm hitting you or whatever. But uh, but that's when you would say that. Oh, you know, John hit Jack with a stick or by means of a stick. Uh, and here, though, we're we're told that the the instrumentality is the spirit, and you're seeing that in um, in verse three except by the Holy Spirit, talking about the affirmation of the gospel, of the of the confession of Christ as Lord. But then, again, just going back to verses you were reading, to each one the manifestation of, of the Spirit is given for the common good, to one given through the Spirit. You see that, that, that language of means? Through the Spirit, a message of wisdom, to another message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit is the way the NIV translates it there. So... But, but the Holy Spirit can't be a means. Everything else is a means, right? No. Holy so Spirit that, means. So, yeah. So the Holy Spirit himself can be the means of, of accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. It's the means that enables. And it's, uh, um, uh, how does he phrase it? Uh, that by no one, by which no one else can do, do it. And uh, it's... It, except by the spirit. So you have all those important qualifying words in a sentence. It's really packed with information. And to get away from that, you have to come up with a really good story. I, I mean, I, I'll give Leighton credit that that's pretty good. Um, but I've seen him talk about this before. I, I looked up one, one example from the past that's in a, a a group chat, and he uses a, a different explanation. So I think um, he's working on it, but I think that we can find the answer that he should be looking for right here, right, right in that text, the way that's phrased, and and, and, so, and how it informs us. So the, I mean, that was really. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I mean that, that was really clear. But I'll just I'll hazard a summary because I I heard at least two very strong uh, points back. So I just wanted to resummarize them just to make sure I was understanding you guys correctly. So the first I heard is kind of this uh, taking Leighton's argument and, and basically uh, a reducto ad, ad absurdum, basically saying, well, if Leighton is right, then all that means, all that Paul is saying is no one can believe the Bible except by the Bible, which is so trivial that, you know, let's not, Let's put, not put something that trivially into Paul's mouth. And then the second point that I'm hearing is that Leighton's view would require an absolute jump from one sentence to the next in terms of what does it mean for things to happen by the Spirit? Because in uh, when it comes to conversion and, and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, he wants to say, well, that's um, something that the Holy Spirit did in the remote past not today, now, acting in the in the person. But when it says that people do things by the Spirit and through the Spirit, uh, in the very next verses that talk about all the spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues and prophesying and um, wisdom and healing and those sorts of things, it's 
of course that the Holy Spirit is working in it's by through the Holy Spirit's power right then and there on the spot. The Holy Spirit is making those things happen. He's empowering people to do do those things. So it requires this kind of huge jump in language from Paul of what he means by the Spirit without any qualification or explanation. There's just this, you know, gigantic change in the way Paul is using the same type of language. So are those the, the two main points that you guys were making there in response? Did I understand you guys correctly? Yeah, and the similarity is here too. Uh, you know, I don't hear Armenians too much criticizing Calvinists about their Manichaean this or their, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't know why we don't do that more because we could uh, for the, you know, as far as determinism is concerned. But there's a similarity in here because if you read this, it has a natural, it just has a natural meaning. Uh, what does by the spirit mean below? It means the same thing above. But you have to go through special training to make this mean that preachers were sent by the spirit and, and other things like that. Uh, this is not something that someone comes to the text and reads. If I gave this to uh, a group of uh, school children, I don't know how old you want to make them. Let's just make them junior high. And I said, what does this mean? I'm sure I'll get a whole bunch of answers, but I'd be surprised if anybody, I don't know how many people I have to ask before I came up with an answer like that. They would just wouldn't say that's what the natural meaning is. And they wouldn't, and, and you know what, if I went into a bunch of seminary students, I handed them those answers. They would say those kids were probably very often pretty correct and just by the plain reading of the text. All right. Okay, uh, let's, um, there, let's switch back to Leighton. So if you guys were good, let's, uh, let's listen to another bit here from Dr. Flowers and uh, see what he has to say. Okay. Responsive gospel, response that brings salvation. So in a word, okay. it's faith. Oh. The proclaimed truth of Christ. Spirit empowering us. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the proclaimed truth of Christ. That's Romans 10. How will they believe in one whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? That's the, that's the Holy Spirit's means of helping them understand truths that we did not know before. How will they believe in one they've not heard? They can't, they can't believe in somebody they don't know about. They have to be revealed, which is exactly when you go over to Romans chapter 10. Um, that's exactly what he says in the first few verses when he talks about, um, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have zeal for God, but they don't, know, but not in accordance with knowledge. In other words, what are they lacking? They don't know. They don't have the truth. How will they believe in one whom they don't know? They don't have the knowledge. They need to know these truths. And how are they going to have the truths? Well, as the scriptures go on to describe down there in verse 12 and following, um, in verse 14 and following, uh, how will they call upon him and they've not believed? How will they believe in him and who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So what has to happen? There has to be a sending of the preacher, which comes how? Through the inspiration of the prophets and the apostles bringing the scriptures, right? And indwelling of the bride, bringing the preachers who preach and proclaim. They have to be sent. And that's done by God, by a work of his spirit, Okay. So the preacher is sent by a work of the Holy Spirit. And so when the preacher preaches, they hear. If they, of course, don't close their ears to it, that would be their own fault for doing it, not an inclination from birth that they can't help, okay? If they choose to ignore the preacher, that's their fault, their fault alone. Okay, so they can't hear it. And once they hear it, they're able to believe it. And once they believe it, then they're able to call upon the one they believe for salvation, okay? So you, um, so if, you, if you've got the order of them calling upon the name of the Lord, Jesus is Lord, that comes after the preacher preaches, which is a help of the Spirit working through the preacher, 
Um, and after they hear, which comes by the word of the spirit, uh, faith cometh by hearing, and therefore there's faith because they hear. If they don't suppress the truth, they hear and believe it. And then they cry out, Jesus is Lord. So that's the order that's happening there is the work of the spirit bringing the preacher and them hearing and having faith and then crying out, Jesus is Lord. That's the order as far as I can tell. So I'm not sure why this verse would say anything that supports the Arminian premise of total inability. Oh. Oh, this is probably a good place to pause. It's, I think I think Clayton is bringing in a different point. It's not so much exegetical on First Corinthians twelve three, but he uh, is making he's he's, he's at least uh, arguing from for his position that inability is limited to lack of information based on um, the you know how will they believe unless someone uh, tells them um, from Romans chapter ten. So. I don't know if you guys want to comment on that point. I know it's it is slightly an aside, but it's I think it's an important issue. So um, yeah, it'd be good to touch on it. It's true yeah. that the, the message brought to them, you know. So so um, yeah, and I see a couple things. One thing just lingering from our last sort of section. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think you were talking about not that you necessarily said exactly this, but something to the effect that, you know, that Leighton does not want to say that the Holy Spirit is doing it in the present. And just to be, you know, make sure we're as fair as we can to him, that he seems to think that the Holy Spirit can do it or might do it, sometimes do it, does it, maybe even often does it or always does it, but doesn't need to, like the sinner doesn't need him to do it. Um, just to clarify that. But regarding this text here, Romans 10, um, I, yeah, I wasn't saying that, that Romans 10 and Roman first Corinthians 12 are the same context. They're not the same context, but what we see in Romans 10, the point I was making is that the confession of Christ as Lord is what Paul identifies in Romans 10 as the saving confession. Yeah. So that's the point that I was making there. The contexts are very different in Romans 10, uh, nine through 11. In, in Romans, in fact, one of the main purposes of Romans, I think most scholars agree at least that it's one of the main purposes. Uh, many scholars even think it's the main purpose, and a lot of the other purposes of Romans fall under this purpose, is that Paul was seeking to establish a relationship with the church at Rome and was uh, seeking, really, like as a missionary, seeking the church's support. Okay, yeah. so this explains a lot of the book of Romans. Uh, and then in Romans 10, Paul is really, perhaps even his main argument for this is coming out in Romans 10, where he finally says, well, how, how can the people be reached unless the preacher is sent? And in Romans 10 also is where he really directly shares uh, the gospel that he preaches. And then, so, and then he, so he's making an argument there for, for supporting him in, in a sense. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's, at, not at all the context in, in 1 Corinthians 12. Leighton himself said it. And like the, the, con, the context in, Romans, in 1 Corinthians 12 is about spiritual gifts. So that this whole thing that he's going on here, that he's undertaken to explain here in this section is, it's kind of a red herring. Um, it's not like I was saying, hey, let's go look at Romans 10. And Romans 10 explains to us 1 Corinthians 12. It was more very, you know, 
single and focused point, one aspect of Romans 10 does connect to 1 Corinthians 12, and that is that Paul saw confession of Christ as Lord as one way of summing up the saving response to the gospel. Um, but beyond that, the, the contexts are certainly very different. And then here, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. And so the question is about how does, uh, in terms of the context, how does Paul saying that you can't confess Christ as Lord apart uh, except by the Spirit, how does that um, fit into the context of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? So does that answer that's good question there or, or explain like my my thoughts about him appealing to romans 10. yeah it does i mean i suppose i suppose i would add that i don't think that romans 10 says that the only inability the only reason why people don't believe is a lack of information right um that they don't need the you know the personal uh anyways i, I guess um I, I i i just got the sense that leighton is seeing more in the text than is there but i think we should agree with him that the people need the gospel and right that, that is important and he's right as far as that goes but i think when he goes a step farther and that's the only thing they need well, the text, where does it say that? You know, right. Now, he might think it's intuitive because of his whole systematic, but. Um, yeah, and so it's, and, and it's a good point. Uh, in Romans 10, Paul says, faith comes by hearing, right? And hearing by the word of Christ, or basically referring to the word of the gospel, the message of the gospel. And so if, if, you, if that was the only text we had, then you'd think, okay, the only thing you need for faith in the gospel is the gospel itself but that's not the only text we have uh we have first corinthians 12 3 as as one text um it's not the only text it's not even necessarily the best text i i i uh, like it because it's it's so succinct and and um and focused but um but romans 10 doesn't doesn't address whether there are other necessary means more faith so and i think if as you put together the various texts in the bible about about how we come to faith then we say oh no we need the gospel but we also need uh the working of the holy spirit alongside the gospel and and right here in first corinthians 12 3 we see that no one can affirm christ as lord except by the spirit Right. Okay. Um, you guys ready to uh, continue with uh, Leighton's comments here? Yes. Okay. Obviously, believers will confess Christ as Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit on some connection to that. And basically refers to a genuine, obviously, a genuine heart or spirit enables you of somebody that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so, and of course, even if you, if you were to concede that this passage is about the salvific proclamation of somebody declaring Jesus as Lord in order to be saved, even if that's what this was about and not about what we already laid out as it being about discerning uh, between those who are speaking of the spirit and those who are not, even if it was about that, we would say the exact same thing. You, you can't, you can't call upon the one you don't know. 
and you can't know about him unless the spirit reveals him to you. And how does the spirit reveal him to you? By means of the preacher, by the proclamation of the scriptures and by various other means to bring you that truth as well. Both general revelation, dreams, miracles, all these other means that he uses. Okay. Um, but it's not overcoming an innate inability from birth. It's calling a sinner to reconciliation and sinners are at different stages of uh, rebellion and enmity. Uh, people aren't born all just totally blind and at enmity with God at the fullest level of hostility. No, people can become more and more hostile towards the gospel, grow more and more blinded to the truth based upon their reaction to it and based upon their consciences becoming seared. Whereas the um, the doctrine of total inability pretty much has everybody in that condition from birth insofar as they can't see, hear, and understand in a sufficient way as to respond positively to it, apart from whatever this extra working is. That's what why we're pushing back on it. We have in Acts 8.27, Paul... Uh, uh, or this very important uh, that point about scripture. He makes another point. In True. They okay, in different point. That point that there can be times in which the author is talking about a different point, but he makes another point in, in the midst of making that point, and the, the point is still true. Okay, I, I can admit all of that, but the, this passage, even if we concede, as I already said, even if we concede that. He's, he's saying that no one can confess Jesus as Lord without the help or the aid of the Spirit. That's not enough to get you to where you need to be, Calvinists or Arminians in this case, right? It's not enough to get you to where you need to be. Why? Because it's not a question. The point of contention is not whether or not we need the aid of the Spirit or not. The question is, does the Spirit's means of aiding us work sufficiently or not? In other words, do all the means that the Spirit uses to aid us are they sufficient or not? That's the point of contention. So proving that we need the spirit to aid us is not enough. You have to prove that the aid he provides through all of these means over here that are listed actually talked about in the Bible aren't enough apart from this extra work of grace, which is there to help change the nature of man to give him back a capacity he was born without due to the fall. That's the bar for you, Brian. And you haven't met that bar. You, you've met this bar. You've met this bar right here, but you haven't met this bar, okay? And so the bar you've met is that we, even if I were to concede this passage was about that and that point was being made, um, you've only conceded that we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Okay. You haven't, you haven't conceded, you haven't shown us how we need the help of the Holy Spirit beyond the means he already says he uses. And the means that he says he uses in the Bible, like the miracles, like the walking on water, uh, like the um, inspiration of the scriptures, all these other means that the Bible actually talks about, you have to demonstrate the Spirit must do some other work internally, even though he doesn't indwell the, the person yet, because even you would admit the person's not indwelled by the spirit until they believe. So that happens after faith. So the person being worked on by the spirit in at least some sense has to be an external working of the spirit. That's doing what something other than what the gospel is doing, something other than what the miracles are doing, something other than what all these other means are doing. It's doing something that overcomes what seems to me to be an ontological problem. You don't want to call it an ontological problem for reasons that I, you'd have to answer as to why you don't want to call it an ontological problem, even though your forebearers do, um, and therefore doesn't require an ontological solution. And so you need to explain to us what that problem is and what the Holy Spirit is accomplishing that these other means cannot accomplish. That's the burden. And this passage doesn't even come close, as far as I can tell, brother, to getting to that point, especially given the fact that it's not even talking about that point, even by your own admission. Um, and so that, that's that's kind of where I stand on this. I don't know what else to say about Okay, um, so that was a, obviously a longer clip, but I, I, that is a, 
I thought I thought that was a kind of a package deal and covering it, it, although it covered quite a bit of ground. So, you know, got into ontology, then granting some of your points for the sake of discussion and and then what, what exactly the bar is. So, um, you know, I still I'm still hearing from Leighton's side that he's arguing that there the Holy Spirit is working through means. And I think what his concession might be is, OK, so the, the Holy Spirit is working through means. But let's say for the sake of discussion, the Holy Spirit is today always working through means, always in, in every case, you, using um, uh, Holy Spirit inspired preachers and that sort of thing. Um, is that is that sufficient or do we need a direct work of the Holy Spirit um, that? I, I think he, he's saying is the, the the bar to get to. So at least that's the way I understood him. So there's there's quite a bit of ground to cover there, but uh, I, I did want to get it all in one package, even though it's a long clip to play, because I think it, the, some of these parts fit together. So um, it's quite a bit to take on, but I think it's uh, I think it's well worth it because I think it's getting to. Oh, I, I, well, I'll say this. I, I think it's a little less connected to the exegesis of the text, but I think he's getting to some more of the systematic issues um, that maybe influence how he is or why, you know, what's his motivation for not taking the text in the way that uh, we have so far. So anyways, with all that said, um, if you guys want to address that, I'd, I'd be really curious as to how you would respond to Leighton on um, on those points. Uh, although, go ahead. I was just saying, might you be able to like maybe break down those points, like since that was a long section, uh, so, if you might be able to break down those points, maybe, you, and you don't even have to, t I guess you could tell us up front, but then maybe like then, okay, say, okay, now let's talk about this. So sure. Okay. Why don't we, st why don't we start with um, ontology? So you know, ontology being a state of being, you know, so state one to state two, like there's a change. Uh, so sometimes Leighton says it is, you know, well, there's an ontological change. And then sometimes he says it a little more specific. There's, you know, in our view, there has to be this ontological change of human nature. And um, so I guess if you, if we could comment on that a bit, um, I mean, I, I'd have plenty to say on it myself, but I, but I'll I'll defer. So well, we're interested what, in what you have to say as well. So well, okay. So I, I, I'll I'll say I'll I'll start out then. So okay. So ontological change is not an issue, but I think even on Leighton's view, ontological change shouldn't be an issue because okay. So here, watch an ontological change. Right here, I'm holding up one finger. And now I'm holding up two. So I had state one where there's one finger, and state two. Where I'm holding up two fingers, right? So that's an ontological change. I went from state one to state two, and there was a causal difference between those two, right? On Leighton's view, there's an ontological change from ignorance to knowledge, right? State one, ignorance. State two, knowledge. He has no problem with saying that God is the cause in between this through divine revelation. The issue between us, so what he's, so when he says the words ontological change, you know, I, th I think that is, um, sh sure, of course, it's, there, there's an ontological change. You know, that that's that's not the question. Where he seems to be 
trying to paint us into a corner is, well, it's an ontological change of human nature. Well, wait a minute. What is human nature? You know, get me a philosopher quick because, you know, we got to figure this out. But, you know, human nature obviously is going to involve we're made in the image of God. We have a uh, immaterial soul. We have a will. We have a conscience and intellect and those those sorts of things. And they they stay the same throughout uh, a, a number of different contexts. Right. So we're Adam was human in the garden. Um you know, we're human, even though we're fallen. Christ was, is human, even though he was the, um, you know, incarnate son of God. And we'll be human in heaven, right? So in, all those are different, but the common denominator of what makes us human is the same. So does that human nature change? No, you know, we're not saying prevenient grace change, that changes that. But yeah, sure. Provenient grace is a is a change in general. It's just not a change to human nature. At least that's the way I see it. I'm curious as to what you guys make of that point. Um, but I, I I feel like that Leighton is switching back and forth between ontological change and ontological change of human nature, and yeah. um, confusing the issue in that way. So I, I guess the way I I thought of it, this probably will be helpful just like for my you know, and expression, expressing my own thinking. So I think I would see it differently than you, or I wouldn't see that to that to be an ontological change. The, the way I'm thinking of ontological change is a uh, sort of like a uh, systemic change of nature. So, um, so it's not enough to like have, you know, someone you know, sit in a different position or change their body position or anything like that. But to me, like an ontological change is a change in the very um, nature of the person. And here by nature, I'm thinking, I guess, in terms of, say, sinful nature versus uh, versus a new godly nature, that sort of thing. And so when I say there is an, onto an ontological change, I would see regeneration as an ontological change in the sense that you now have a new nature with a new systemic impulse towards godliness. In the flesh, our sinful nature is is a you know a systemic um, you know overall orientation towards sin. And so, so my my point in denying that there's an ontological change would be that. God doesn't change our nature. He doesn't. He doesn't give us a fundamental uh, change in our desires overall. That where where we systemically now are oriented towards godliness. Uh, that's regeneration. But what God can do is He can come and and work in our hearts. He can even give us new desires, uh, some new desires, but not not sort of like a principle of new desire. Now like my my general orientation switches to uh to desiring godliness so that's how i when i deny an ontological change I'm, I'm saying that like god doesn't regenerate us he doesn't give us a new impulse for for our fundamental uh nature or or the uh the driving principle of our desires so that's how i'm thinking of that in denying an ontological change uh 
and also in denying partial regeneration, that God doesn't partially, um, you know, give us sort of like a, a, a partial fundamental change in, in, the, in the driving principle of our, of our desires. Um, and of course, different Armenians view that differently. Some think that he does. Uh, some think, you know, that there is an ontological change. But so I don't think there's an ontological change in the way I, in the way I'm understanding that language is how, as how I just expressed expressed it. Does that make sense? At least like, not that you necessarily agree, but that okay. Oh, I see how you're thinking of it, and that's we agree in, clear. We we agree in substance. I, I think where we disagree is in the semantics. So. I guess maybe where we disagree is what exactly human nature is, which is a deep philosophical yeah. question. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I tend to go down into what the essence of human nature is because, you know, I, I want to say Adam was human before the fall and after yeah. the fall right. and in heaven. Right. So I, and he I have to abstract I want to abstract out whatever changed in Adam from because it didn't change his that his humanity, right? He was still human in all three states. So, but that's that, but but the, you know, I, I want to say that everything you agree, everything you just said, I agree with, except maybe some of the terminology. Mm -hmm. Um, but that that's all good. Um, yeah. I, I, I got your point and I agree with the substance of what you said. Any thoughts there, Luke? Um, so for the sake of time and to keep it simple, what I would do is I would say, um, well, you have to find what ontological change means. So if someone, I mean, there's a philosopher named Heraclitus, and he said you can never step in the same river twice because it's always changing. And by the time you step in the river, you're not the same person you were before you stepped in the river. And when you come out, you're not the same person. So if he means that information is ontological or uh, my influence on you, my ability to convict you is ontological, well then, okay, everything's ontological. I mean, this conversation yeah. is ontological. But if he means that teaching by the spirit is ontological, well, he would have to convince me that teaching by someone else is ontological. But what I'm saying is that the convicting power of the spirit is more powerful not it doesn't have to you know i'm not saying the spirit forces anyone to do anything but it it knows you know on judgment day we're all going to be flashbacks of everything we did wrong and right okay are we going to be ontologically changed you, you know by that information we're going to be people seeing that information okay the spirit has that ability to know you like like inside and out to go to where you are and bring you back. So if you want to go with them, go ahead. But I'm not talking about uh, um, uh, a sixth sense being turned on or um, you know, being able to see things you never saw before, uh, uh, being able to think thoughts you never thought before, except that this teaching influence, you know, is um, listen and learn from the Father is a teaching that has to come from him because he both knows us and he knows himself. He knows what he needs to communicate about himself and he knows who we are. And so 
is that's not ontological. Um, you can argue that it is. He's going to argue that something supernatural is ontological. But yes, that's that's a, yeah. that's not convincing to me. Yeah. So I think in so I think you to a degree, and and Dan, I think it's a great point. Your basic that uh, if Lane's going to call our view ontological uh, an ontological change, so is his. Uh, his right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, and. Another thing that he had said earlier, um, you know, I think Dan was going to help us like with any with maybe sections of it, but just in case he didn't doesn't mention this one, he was talking about how uh, the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell un sinners, unbelievers, in the sense of unbelievers, uh, that it is a uh, it's an external work of the Spirit. And I say no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit can reach into a person's soul, he can go into a person's soul, he can go in their heart and work. Um, and I, I don't see why there should be any trouble thinking that the Holy Spirit can do that, he's God. Uh, and so if the Holy Spirit works in someone's heart, then that that he doesn't need to indwell them to do that. He doesn't, in, indwelling is the idea of the Holy Spirit taking up residence within someone's heart, giving them a new nature, uh, imparting you know eternal spiritual life to them and you know that's really all part and parcel of regeneration uh but he doesn't need to do that to work in someone's heart he can convict someone he can and if we're in using analogies because this is of course spiritual right but in using analogies the holy spirit can he can he can reach into the person's heart and work in there or if you think of like of him actually just being working in the person and want to kind of think of it as like a work a workman co goes inside a house and works in there but he doesn't indwell that house he doesn't live there um so however you you know i think i like better him reaching in in the sense that it's really making clear he's not it's not like he's filling the person uh or indwelling them so Got it. Yeah. So I guess one other, actually, and I think this is probably the main point to bring up is he's saying, okay, so the Holy Spirit does do things both in the past. So in the past, obviously the Holy Spirit inspired scriptures, which is very important. We all agree that's very important. And not only that, he will say, well, the Holy Spirit is doing things today in terms of Holy Spirit filled preachers of the gospel. And he also mentioned other things that the Holy Spirit is doing, including, you know, miracles that confirm the gospel and those sorts of things. So, um, so in my mind, you know, I, I'm just coming up with like two different scenarios. So one is, you know, a, a Holy uh, Spirit filled preacher in a church preaching and there's an unbeliever listening to the person. But another example might be, um, let's say, for example, um, the Holy Spirit inspires scripture and somebody prints a Bible and it's know, lost for a hundred years, something like that. And so, and then somebody is in a hotel room and they just, they, they find this Bible that was under, under some furniture. And so now you don't have the Holy Spirit filled preacher, but you have the, the Bible. So in both of those examples, he's saying, okay, well, you know, what is the bar uh, for us to meet, which is, um, Oh, yeah. You know, the, the Holy Spirit in both scenarios did something. He is working through means. And 
we need to show that the work of the Holy Spirit is not limited to those means, but is something more direct onto the human heart rather than through those means. So I don't, I don't know if I've uh, restated that more clearly than he said it, but I, I think yeah. the, the point that that is his question is, okay, well, why, why aren't the means um, that the Holy Spirit does employ, why doesn't that satisfy the text of, you know, first Corinthians 12, three of yeah. by the spirit? Yeah. So I, I'm glad you, glad you, what, what, what you said reminded me of, of, of what he was saying there. Um, and one is one major fundamental answer is, you know, as we've been talking about it, First uh, Corinthians twelve really is talking about the direct work of the Spirit in people's hearts. So by the Spirit has that sense. Leighton wants to replace by the Spirit with by external means that the Spirit uses, but it actually says by the Spirit, not by the external means that the Spirit uses, not not by the preaching of the word by preachers. Um, so that's that's one thing. And so, yes, it actually does. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 3 is not the only text. It's just a very, very convenient one because it's so it's short and sweet. And and I knew it complete when I wore a young man's clothes. No, <laughs> uh, it's short and sweet and get and right to the point, gives us by the spirit, gives us the context of the direct working of the spirit in the soul. Um, and so, and so it does give us, it meets that bar because here's the problem or here's the issue. Uh, Leighton keeps wanting to say, and so you have to, it has to be this, um, you know, it has to address this, uh, inability from birth, etc. Okay. Well, by Paul uses the language of inability here. He says that no one can affirm Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Spirit. So it meets the bar because one, uh, this is uh, for, for somebody who is coming to Christ, this is the saving confession, Romans 10. That's why I appeal to Romans 10. Uh, Paul says that no one can, so that everyone is unable. That's inability, right? To affirm the gospel, to believe the gospel, and then accept by the Holy Spirit. So what we get here is that people are unable to believe the gospel, to affirm the gospel, to give the saving response to the gospel, except by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, which we've seen in the con in this context, in by the language is talking about the direct work of the Spirit, the Spirit Himself as the means of that empowerment. So it 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 meets the bar. Now, granted, it doesn't say everything that the Spirit does. Well, what is the Spirit doing by His His direct work in the person? And it, it doesn't exactly. Of course, it doesn't exactly say that, um, but we don't need it to say that to know that people are that the people are unable to believe the gospel apart from the direct working of the spirit in their heart. Um, and then something that's kind of weird 
to me is that Layton seems just like really at pains to try to, and again, not that I don't, not that he's necessarily trying to do it. I don't know, but it just it just seems like he's really at pains to like to keep the spirit of us from seeing the spirit is working directly in people's hearts. And it's it's strange um, in part because like he'll if he acknowledges that the Holy Spirit is working directly in the hearts of preachers, but then he won't he won't like I guess countenance the Holy Spirit working in the heart of the sinner. Um, and so just I guess one thing I would say is just imagine what you're uh, imagine or envision the Holy Spirit working in the heart of the preacher and then just transplant that like abstractly, uh, like in a way that would apply to the sinner. It wouldn't be the exact same because with the preacher, he's inspiring him to preach, maybe giving him the words, etc. But just the idea of like directly working in the sinner's heart, he can do that as well. And and that's that's the sense we get from a passage like, First Corinthians twelve three. Does that address yeah. kind of what you were asking about? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, yeah. So I don't know, Luke, if you want to um, to add add to that as well. Um, but yeah, that was clear to me, Brian. I'm pretty good with that. I mean, I, I do think uh, I think. Consciously or unconsciously, Leighton's motivation is to, he's reacting to Calvinism and he's trying to come up with good arguments against Calvinism. And he sees us as being influenced by that. And if we weren't on board, he would have a bigger pool of people to argue uh, his point in a stronger uh, alliance. But um, we, it's, we, I sure don't have any affection for Calvinism, um, I, or any other view, really, even my own. It's just that this is the way I see it, and um, I really, I, I mean, I, I, I think that's really his motivation. So I, he often says, well, I don't see, you have to convince me, I don't see you may never see it. I may never have to convince you, but this is my relaying my information. I have yet to see it steel manned. I don't feel like I'm getting steel manned here. I feel like I'm getting this pejorative uh, secret means talk. Well, I'm not telling you what the secret means. I'm actually telling you what it is. You're telling me the text doesn't say what it says. It has. We have to come up with an elaborate story where by the spirit means something different in the first paragraph than it does all of the other times it's used below. No, <laughs> just, it's not convincing. Um, regarding the, the movement of the spirit in man's heart, I just really think that God knows us better than we know ourselves. Uh, we have hidden places we've never seen and uh, they're there, they affect us. And we don't know God the way God knows God. So I think his spirit communicates with our spirit. And that's how I see it. And I think this is what's behind all of this. And uh, like uh, uh, 2 Timothy 2.26 says, uh, you'll be uh, you'll escape the captivity of, of Satan. Uh, I think that's what God is doing. 
God granting repentance, granting a change of mind, metaneo, that's what it means. So, uh, you know, that's how I see it. So I, I, don't, I don't think I need to add a lot to that. That, you know, that just, um, not that we need to really get into too into this, but just what you're, you're mentioning that text just reminds me that there are, you know, as Armenians, we don't have a problem with God, that the idea that faith is a gift. Um, now we don't mean the same thing that it does by as Calvinists do, but like there, that talk, it talks about Paul. Uh, Paul talks about granting repentance, right? right? Um, and so that language of God granting repentance, God, God granting faith that's been granted to us to be able to believe, to be to believe, things like that. I I don't think Scripture emphasizes faith as a gift, but there are times where it implies faith as a gift or repentance, and and really that that refer as Armenians we would say that refers to God enabling us to believe, like that's the meaning of faith as a gift. And I actually think we won't get into it here, but uh, if you look at the normal use of language, uh, whether it's in scripture or just the way we use language, that's that's what that language means when you talk about the way I put it is one person giving another person an action that the other person does. Mm -hmm. That that's specifically what what uh, the category that God giving faith or giving repentance falls into. One person giving another person an action that the other person does. The natural meaning of that language is the is that a person is being enabled to do what they what they're to do or they're being given the opportunity to do it um and so uh just yeah I, maybe that well i don't know if that was worth going into but even that yeah. argues for like what we're talking about that uh i would think leighton would have a lot a hard time dealing with those texts where we where we do see faith or repentance seen as a gift um, if he doesn't, if he's not going to go with us in seeing it as God enabling faith, or but maybe, maybe he would say that God does enable faith, but he does that by by giving the gospel. I guess is what yeah. he would say, right? So yeah. I don't know. Maybe we maybe maybe we should just erase that whole section of me talking about that. <laughs> No, no. I mean, I, I, I think it. I think it's good. I, I think we could probably just, uh, just go with that. I mean, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's so it's a gift, but you know, normally gifts aren't irresistible, right? right. So, right. so uh, you know, we don't take it in, in a Calvinistic sense, but it does seem to be an enabling. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, th I think, uh, yeah, I, th I think that I think that's good. I think that's good, and, and also uh, the. Point that uh, that Luke was bringing out of the same text, you know, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do their will. So it's a well, well. Uh, did to do as well, right? So um, it's that granting of repentance that helps us escape the uh, captivity and a snare. So there's an inability there, and. Anyways, so yeah, I th I, th I think it's a very strong verse uh, in, in support of our position as well. So I think, but I think the overall point is there's many other texts we could go to besides First Corinthians twelve three. But the, like you've said several times, First Corinthians twelve three is 
uh, short and sweet and simple. That's what we're talking about. I mean, we don't we're not talking about all the verses. Possibly. Right. I mean, we've right. talked our views on other some several other verses, but uh, you know, oh. we got this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was um, all that I had in, in terms of clips from uh, Leighton to play that, that especially that dealt with the text um, of First Corinthians uh, twelve three. So we could go uh, a, a little further if you don't mind. I don't know if you, uh, I think there was there was more that I was hoping to to comment on. Um, oh, for, uh, from Leighton's side, you want yeah. me to keep continue playing? Okay. All yeah. right. Hang on. Let me let me pull them back. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Um, I did want to engage with a couple of uh, comments. Hey, man, I guess is uh, one of our Armenian interlocutors. I wish people would use their actual names so I know who I'm talking to. But he says, Leighton is falsely insisting that prevenient grace is an ontological change rather than divine grace or divine aid. Um, rewind and watch again. And you'll notice, hey, man, that I said that Abishano and the others that were on that program don't go as far as Roger Olson did to say that there's an ontological change need a change. Some Arminians, including Arminius and the classical Arminians, do believe there's a need for an ontological change of nature, a partial regeneration. Ron Abishano denies that. I read that in the article. I read Abishano saying that in the article, and I've said it three times now in this one. So Heyman is not being a good interlocutor with me. He's not, he's not meeting me where I am, okay? By implication, I have argued that if you're claiming that a person is born in a condition that they don't spiritually have the capacity or moral capacity to respond positively to, to divine given truth, that, as far as I can tell, is an ontological problem of the person's very nature, their being, which Calvinists agree with and classical Armenians agree with. Modern Armenians, like Abishano, say, no, 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 it's not an ontological problem. Therefore, it doesn't need an ontological solution. I'm just simply saying that doesn't compute with me. I don't understand how you can describe an ontological problem, i.e. a person's born with an incapacity to believe divinely inspired truth, and then just say it's not an ontological problem and it doesn't need an ontological solution. You just seem to be ad hoc claiming something that nobody's ever claimed before <laughs> throughout church history, it seems to me at least. And again, I can be corrected on this. Um, I'm not a philosopher by trade. And so maybe my understanding of what an ontological change is, is, is flawed in some way. And I'm, I'm open to be corrected on that point. But th there's, sure. there's a difference between action. So, yeah, I think we've, we pretty much already addressed this. Uh, but I, maybe I think that was helpful to see what what Leighton's meaning by ontological, just by nature, basically. Um, but the problem is that uh, I think, at least from my perspective, like he, he's claiming that you need a change of nature in order to believe. Whereas the my point about a prevenient grace is prevenient grace grace helps you to do something that you can't do by nature. So in your sinful nature, you can't believe in Christ because you're hostile towards God. Uh, you know, John 3, where it talks about those who are, you know, those who, exactly, no, I'm not going to get the exact language, but basically those who are, who live sinfully don't come to the light, lest their deeds be exposed, the, those types of things. Um, that what we're saying is that what God does in prevenient grace is he helps the person who can't, who wouldn't be able to believe otherwise to be able to believe. And, and I've given the example of lifting a weight or 
walking with a brace where the nature isn't changed, but help is given so that the person can do what they normally can't do. Uh, and their nature isn't changed, but they are still able to do that by, by being, being given aid by, in this case, grace. Right. I, I would, I, I'd also make a, another point that something that Leighton Fred Leighton said there is an inability to understand. And I think that goes back to an earlier point that you made um, in our last video, Brian, but where you were pointing out to him, well, actually, even in your, I think in your conversation directly with him, you were pointing out that, that um, saving faith is more than just intellectual assent, yeah. but it's also, it's got the, the component of repentance and then trust and those sorts of things. So long story short, um, I, I don't, I don't think the issue is is an intellectual, like basically we're not saying totally to pray people are just stupid, right? Like right. we're not saying that, right? They can understand the, the the propositional facts of the gospel, but it's it's the difference between you can examine the parachute and pull on the strings and read up on the history of how parachutes are made and all that stuff, but at some point you got to put the parachute on and jump out of the plane and trust that the parachute is going to keep you safe. Yeah. And we have to turn our, our future over to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him. And it's that second part where it's not just a more facts, it's, it's trust. And I, I think that, that there's, um, but for, see from, from Leighton's perspective, the inability issue is isolated to ignorance because for him believing the gospel is intellectual assent rather than intellectual assent plus trust. Hmm. Um, so I, I think I think there's some equivocation, but in, in essence, I would say that it, frankly, if if Leighton is saying that we are saying that totally depraved people are just stupid, um, <laughs> then. <laughs> That's a straw man. That's not right. what we're saying. Right, right. Um, now, if I remember correctly, I don't know if we want to continue or not, but I, I just one thing I, I think he says at one point is, uh, before this is done, is something to the effect that, like, oh, okay, this text, this is their best text. You know, they Brian claims this is their best text. I'm not necessarily claiming that i mean um i think it's a, a fantastic text sweet simple to the point um but uh but yeah I, it's just one text and again chosen because it's so again simple and short and sweet and so and there are many many texts and uh so i just kind of wanted to to make that point that it so yeah what it's worth absolutely well i think on the video that we're probably approaching the two hour mark and um so i think maybe we should uh start wrapping up here but uh do you guys have perhaps some closing um closing <clears throat> remarks closing thoughts before we uh before we end this uh this uh discussion should i go first i feel like everyone's looking at me but you are yeah. We were looking at you. I don't know, maybe because I've I've gone for so many times. I'm just, you know, uh, when when I was in college, I read this book called the by T.S. Kuhn called the 
uh, what is it, the history of scientific, the structure of scientific revolution, something like that. Oh, yeah, Kuhn, I think. Kuhn, yeah, and uh, it, it was kind of earth shattering, but the main thing he talked about was the in incommensurability of competing thoughts, of competing uh, 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 views of uh, paradigms. And so he talked about how there's only one discipline that, that that's best to compare to science, how scientists, they, 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 they're, they're not able to communicate because each of them wants the other to communicate in their system. And he, at the very end of the book, he tells you what, you know, it's near the end of the book, if I remember, it's been 30 years probably. Uh, uh, he says, it's theology. He says, theologians, they just can't understand each other because they're, they want the other person's concepts to fit into theirs. And if you, I wouldn't want to play a drinking game watching Leighton's last couple of videos where he says, I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand. And then rephrases things we say in his own, from his own perspective and tries to fit it in. And then demands that our, the way we use words, solve his problem within his system. I don't feel like he's steel manning us. I think there's a lot of pejorative language, not that I'm immune from that, but I do try to steel man the other person's position. I'm pretty good at that. Um, I'm not gonna give myself a trophy, but I'm preparing one, okay? But I'm just saying I try. I don't feel, I don't get that feeling from him. He probably might not get it from me. But I think that's where we need to go as individuals. And um, I hope we can get closer to that. I, I, I just don't think we're, we're getting there. Um, uh, I think we did a pretty good job. We covered a lot of bases. Um, Brian made me think of a couple of things I hadn't thought of before. And uh, I feel like I've expressed myself enough. Probably I'd like to talk a little more, more about the meaning of ontological change sometime, the history of the church, or these ideas of what, what really is Augustinian. Like if we're gonna give Augustinian some blame, we can't say he time traveled and gave these people before him ideas that we call Augustinianism. I mean, then, you know, <laughs> we all believe in the Trinity. Are we Augustinians? Come, you know, stop. So when we talk about provenient grace, uh, we're gonna have a discussion someday and we'll talk about the church history involving that. We can call it whatever you want, but what we're talking about here with 1 Corinthians 12.3 is what I'm talking about, the church father's talking about, and we can quote them. I've got three right in front of me. Uh, the quote discussing this passage. Uh, um, and as a matter of fact, probably the reason I don't have more is because a lot of them didn't write about it. So uh, I don't know. That's about all I can say, because once I get on a rant, I can't stop. So I'll just keep talking in my head and you guys can Talk. So, um, yeah, I don't think I necessarily have too much to say, like, in terms of, uh, like, more than we've already said. I I know there's another video out there that kind of, like, actually even preceded this one that we haven't gotten to yet to reviewing. I got um, you. I think we were planning to. I, I don't know if, 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 if we're still up for that, but um, there's also couple other guys involved that might want to be in on that too. So um, 
yeah so how about you dan anything you want to say about so well i i uh i mean obviously the text i think is, is it speaks for itself no no man uh, can say that jesus is lord except by the holy spirit that's why we're Arminians rather than provisionists. It's one of the reasons, anyhow. Um, I want to thank you guys uh, for coming on, sharing your time and thoughts and your uh, um, excellent explanations and all these uh, different issues. It was really a blessing to me. And also thank you to Leighton because he did take the time to, to do the video, even though there's certain aspects where obviously we disagree with him, but you know we agree with him that Jesus Christ is Lord and that um, is... Uh, very important to us because when Leighton is saying that, he's saying that by the Spirit, and that means a we lot to me. Things, so you know, it's not like that. We're just talking about what we disagree about. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's and right. Makes that clear. So, I appreciate that. That's right. So, all right. Well, very good. Um, I guess that's a, a good stopping point. Right. So, you, I just want to say, well, thank again. you for putting all this together because there's a lot of work behind the scenes. Sure. All right. Thank you. Well, God be with you. Okay. Bye.